Hello and welcome to another episode of A Need to Read. In this episode, I'm chatting with Satnam Sanghera, the author of Empire Land, a book about Imperial Britain and the British Empire throughout history. And it's a hell of an episode. I have to apologise for the crackly sound on the microphone that has come from me. It's all trial and error, everyone. And this time, the trial of a new bit for my microphone was an error so sorry about that there's not much I can do now I'm afraid so if it's too much for you then I do apologize I've got loads of episodes but this one is a very good one so if you can bear with it then you get to listen to a great episode and hopefully not hold it against me anyway the podcast before we get into it is sponsored by BetterHelp now BetterHelp are an online therapy provider now therapy has helped me to no end throughout the last couple of years and has helped me put things into perspective understand objectively my thoughts my feelings and really help me get to the bottom of what you could describe as my demons or you could describe it as whatever you want i think mental afflictions whatever you want to dress them up as are present within all of us and you don't have to be at a crisis point to be using better help better help isn't a crisis line it is licensed counselling therapy to get you back to being who you are and if you've strayed from that path then it might be worth having a look into it if therapy is something that you're considering go to betterhelp.com forward slash need to read you get 10% off of your first month and from there trust me your life will get better now other than that I've got a book club I do bonus episodes, they're over on Patreon, so if you like what I do and you want access to a another level of me, as it were, it's like an OnlyFans, just I don't get naked on there, and it's three ninety nine a month, you just head to patreon.com forward slash a need to read, the link's in the description, but let's get on with the show, and once again, I'm sorry for the crackling, it can't be helped. Sathnam, thank you so much for agreeing to come on to discuss your book empire land and obviously anything anything beyond that that we get onto. my pleasure how are you doing i imagine it's it's been quite a, a busy time since the publication of the book yeah i think writing a book is like being in lockdown so i feel like i haven't left the house in five years <laughs> and i'm going totally crazy i'm desperate to go anywhere yeah, I bet. I bet. I bet you're quite used to being inside now. If you, if you were, were you writing pre-lockdown? I was, yeah. I began the book about two years ago. But I began researching it probably four years ago. So, um, you know, you have to kind of... I like writing, but I really... Because I'm quite a sociable person. I yeah. really find it difficult to isolate myself. Yeah, yeah. Okay, I got you. I got you. And then before we get into the intricacies of the book and run through any other, like questions and conversation, would you mind, just for people that haven't heard of you or don't know who you are just doing a quick sort of introduction of, of who you are and what you do sure yeah i'm satnam sangera i'm a journalist with the times and i write columns about business and i write features about politics and arts and all sorts, sorts of things and i'm also the author of three books one a memoir called the boy with the top knot which is about my family uh, the second one is a novel called marriage material which is about a, a punjabi family growing up in a shop in post-war britain and my new book, my third book, is Empire Land, How Imperialism Has Shaped Modern Britain, which is my attempt at popular history. Yeah. It's, um, 
it seems to be the case that it's actually unpopular history from <laughs> my from my reading of the book it's uh it was quite conflicting for me to read and I think I carried quite a bit of like I'm not sure if this term is a term but like ancestral guilt in a sense just that uh look I'm a white middle class Brit and I had no idea about most of the going on goings on in this book in terms of the, the truth of it mm. well I um, nor did I I wouldn't feel bad about it I think yeah. this is one of the problems with British Empire history in that the obs- everyone obsesses about their feelings about how the history makes them proud or makes them ashamed and I think we we've got to get away from that kind of dichotomy and we just mm. need to try to understand it but I understand I also understand what you're saying in that you know the four years of research weren't a fun time for me yeah that was actually going to be one of my questions. Did, did you feel that the research was quite draining and maybe like take on board some sort of like passive trauma at all? Yeah, God, I mean, the massacres, the genocide, and also, you know, the Sikhs, are, I'm a Sikh, um, are in a hmm. funny position with empire because we took the side of the Brits quite often. Like yeah. after the mutiny of 1857, and we fought in both world wars with the British. But equally, we were murdered brutally when necessary. And it's not much yeah. fun, you know, going over that material where you see British people de- dehumanizing us and basically using, killing us for sport, you know? Yeah. Yeah. It, was just a... that, it wasn't just the emotional challenge. I think it's also the intellectual challenge because empire is so complicated. It's like 500 years of history, covered a quarter of the planet. You know, it was different things at different times. It's quite hard to just get your head around it. Yeah, that's it. It's it's a lot to take in. You're you're very right there, and for it to span over five hundred years, like there was there was times during the empire, like the abolition of slavery, seems to be something with Britain that is like, oh, that's like we we helped get rid of it, like we led the way, and oh, look at America, they were so much worse than us, mm. and really, it's like saying that they, I don't know, that Britain what have Britain got rid of in recent times? Like, I'm, I'm struggling to think of something, but to lead the front in something and then lead the front of getting rid of it doesn't quite get rid of the fact that they led the front in slavery and like the docks in Liverpool wouldn't be half as successful as they are if if it wasn't for the slave ships going in and out of there. Yeah, the, the obsession in Britain, especially amongst conservative politicians, is with the fact that we abolished slavery, that supposedly we were the first country to do that. Not true. Actually, Denmark did it before us. But also, yeah. it doesn't cancel out the fact that we shipped 3 million Africans across the Atlantic, you know, yeah. over hundreds of years. And yeah, this weird obsession with abolition at the cost of everything else is, 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 is bewildering. Yeah, it's, it's crazy. Like, to, to comprehend the numbers that are in the book like quite actually millions of people that you uh, you you can't quite like picture that many people in your head and i think what you said earlier about dehumanizing that is very much the case when it comes to history is that like when when we're talking about like mass genocide and and even in more recent history i uh, you'll excuse my pronunciation of this but the jallianwala bar massacre that's pretty good was it yeah Oh, buzzing. Okay. Well, not so buzzing about the actual subject of it because that was only in 1919. And that 
has been spoken about by like figures like Winston Churchill and others, but it's not something I'd ever heard of. Oh, interesting. For that, to, for that to be such recent history. And I don't know if I can blame my ignorance on the schooling system or, or what, what I can blame that on, but I can't remember any of that in school. I don't remember any talk of genocide in such recent history. Yeah, I mean, I, I think you're typical. I mean, the thing I always think about is Tony Blair when he handed back Hong Kong to the Chinese in 1997, I think. And he, in yeah. his biography, he writes that he had very little awareness of the history, which I just found amazing because the Chinese get taught about it at school. They're very aware of what happened with the Opium Wars and how they, you know, how the British ended up with Hong Kong. But that's mm. typical. I mean, this, the number of Oxbridge graduates in history I've come across you know nothing about British colonialism is staggering. It's just something we choose generally to forget. We see ourselves as the country that won World War II and yeah. not really as a country that had the biggest empire in human history. And that's quite strange. Yeah, I suppose it's easier to try and focus on the good side of it. Like, oh, well, the Nazis were really bad and, and we got rid of them. So does that kind of make up for everything that we've ever done? I suppose it definitely yeah. doesn't. Well, that's, that's my problem with World War, World War II. Very simple narrative, six years, clear beginning, clear end, clear morality. We beat the evil German racists, right? But yeah. what that does, it, combined with this abolition thing you've just mentioned, it creates this idea that we are beyond racism in Britain, that we are incapable of being racist. And as mm. you'll know from reading the book, there was at least a century when we were willfully white supremacist. We came up yeah. with lots of modern notions of racism and exp exported them to America and across the world. Yeah, yeah, it definitely holds like a, an influence because I suppose that's what we, we sent, Britain sent people to Australia, sent people to America. And um, it's, it's strange, like colonialism, I never really, I've, I've read a book called Dark Emu, which highlights um, the truth in Australia about how essentially white British people went over there and, and the Spaniards as well and just basically fucked things up royally in terms of like farming, obviously the indigenous Australians, um, um, the, the PC name um, kind of escapes me there because I think it's, it's, it's quite a grey area and I know a couple of places in the book, I think it's you don't quite know how to put it because you ask a white person, oh, what's, what's the PC way of saying it? And they'll, they'll tell you. And if you ask someone who's actually an indigenous Australian, they'll tell you something different. Yeah, no, the language um, is very problematic. Yeah. Um, and actually the Tasmanian genocide is one example. I mean, it's probably the darkest episode in the book where four to 8,000 Tasmanian Aborigines were wiped out. But actually there are people in Tasmania now who say they've got Tasmanian heritage, Aboriginal heritage. And so they're offended by the idea that they were genocide. They say, like, you're trying to wipe me out of existence. So it's a very political area. Yeah. And that was um, that was actually quite a, a painful part of the book to read because they were killing them for sport. Yeah. yeah. And, like, they were saying, like, oh, we mixed them up. It's just the, the way that they were spoken about in the press at the time. Uh, in terms of like some of them will run on four legs and, and sometimes we confuse them for kangaroos in terms of shooting them. It's like, it's just disgusting, isn't it? It's, it's inhumane. Yeah, and it's people actually quite modern historians repeating these ideas that they were shrunken, that they didn't have fire 
and you know they were midgets and it's it's amazing how modern historians can continue the racism because all they've got to rely on are the colonial historians the people who were there the colonialists who write everything down and this is why it's so unbalanced you know so yeah. you get the white person's view of everything there's almost very few slaves who get to tell their story very few slaves who even get to get names you know and so yeah. the experience of three million people is just ignored yeah yeah that's that's crazy part and then um the other the other book that I'd read is Empire of the Summer Moon, which runs into like Comanche history. So the Comanche were the last like Native American tribe who were like the last surviving ones. It was about three thousand by the end, and had just essentially been pushed out and pushed into like a, a tiny corner of land in Texas and what is like now Mexico. And it just goes to show like the 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 gravitas of of how many people were killed harmed forced out of their homes at the hands of people that are now like sort of celebrated as as heroes in nowadays which mm. is so strange well i think you you sound quite well informed you've read more books on empire than i had 4 years ago and also <laughs> i think what you're referring to you know in america this weird fake history that's happening it's mm. the same thing as over here really you know there's a culture war where this whole in reaction to black lives matter a bunch of right-wing conservatives are trying to start a culture war and sow division around empire and have created yeah. this idea that in order to be proud of being british you need to be proud of imperial history which is stupid because it's 500 years you know what you what yeah. are you proud of you're proud of abolition you're proud of you know slavery are you proud of me are you proud of Sadiq Khan? You know what I mean? We're all here because of empire. It's insane. Yeah. It's like saying you're proud of biology or houseplants. It's mad. Yeah. I think you'd find a lot of people who are pretty proud of houseplants nowadays. <laughs> that was a bad Maybe. example. I said that because <laughs> yeah. I'm looking at a houseplant right now. I should say it looks like saying you're proud of sand. Is that yeah. a better analogy? Yeah. Just something you've got absolutely nothing to do with. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. Yeah. It's, it is a strange sense of pride and... I think for me, like never in my life have I ever been like a, a hardcore conservative, but I would say about maybe six years ago, there was a point where I'd probably been two years into being allowed to vote. And I was like, oh, well, continuity breeds success. And I'm just out of pure ignorance, really. And and like not not to make this political when it's, it's actually very hard not to make this political, but to educate yourself on these topics is is so important that's why i think it's such an important thing that you've you've been able to bring this shine a light on this now Thanks, like man. i actually think that the political thing is very interesting because i've had loads very been very surprised by having so many messages from conservatives so sajid mm. javid's reading it baroness wasi chris Patton gave me this amazing review and oh. I, I was trying to get my head around it and it, i really i thought you know what it is i think it's because they're centrists and they mm. see their parties being hijacked by these culture warriors, you know, yeah. and they, they want to claim their party back. So they need the information in order to have the debate. So actually, yeah. I think there's loads. Most people are in the middle, you know, as yeah. with everything. It's a safe place in the middle. Centrist ads. Yeah, yeah, definitely. And what was your like in terms of research for the book? How how far did you go? 
in the research. Like I know obviously travel has been massively restricted when the coronavirus um, sort of kicked in, but you say you started it somewhat like four years ago. How, how far did you go? Yeah, I mean, it's, the thing with books is they change so much. At one point, it was going to be a biography of this guy called Dee Mohammed, who was this Indian who came to Britain in the 1800s. And then it was going to be a screenplay. And then it was going to be a collection of biographies of, of brown people from empire. And it, the thing that changes everything is I went to make a Channel 4 documentary about Jalin Wallabog, the massacre yeah. that happened in 1919. It was the 100th anniversary so I made that for Channel 4 and it was going to the Punjab that made me realise that the way the Sikhs were treated during empire echoed the way they were treated in post-war Britain. And that's got. Yeah. And also I realised that the whole Sikh identity had been created by the British. That, you know, not only am I here because of multiculturalism and empire, I'm here because the British created the Sikhs and that blew my mind. And so that's when I decided to do something on the legacies modern legacies yeah. of empire and for that i didn't really need to travel so much because it's about britain yeah so yeah. i wanted to go to tasmania but actually it was probably for the best that i didn't yeah yeah definitely i've heard it's quite nice is it so yeah, really, no, yeah. i want to go actually yeah i was in melbourne last year and i was i was i've, I've got a distant relative in in tasmania so i was thinking maybe i'll go there but you um you just mentioned there that like Britain created the Sikhs. Would you mind expanding on that? Yeah, I mean, the Sikhs, you know, are quite a small religious group in the context of India. And yeah. um, they grew out of a kind of rejection of Hinduism and Islam. And uh, some academics argue that, you know, around the time of the Indian mutiny, Sikh Sikhism was under threat because Sikhs were increasingly melding into the hin mainstream Hindu community. And, but yeah. then the Sikhs took the side of the British in the mutiny, and the British suddenly decided we were a martial race. You know, they wrote handbooks explaining why we had the right physique for fighting, you know, and basically it was a reflection of the fact they, they thought they could trust us. But then yeah. they created this fighting idea and this, this martial idea of the Sikhs still persists. It's partly created by the Sikhs themselves, but the British supercharged it. And they, yeah. they even started talking about having special Sikh regiments. People talk about having a special Sikh regiment now, in the British Army, you know. Well, there's and, still Gurkha regiments, I believe. Yeah, and Gurkhas had the same treatment. You know, Gurkhas mm. were fetishized by the British Empire. So we are a legacy. You know, the way we see ourselves are a legacy of British Empire. Yeah. It's crazy when it's... you think about it. Oh, trust me, I know. I know. I know you've been thinking about it for years. I've just been thinking about it for the last couple of weeks, and it's been, mm. been mind-blowing. I've got um, quite a large, like, Irish following, and when I put something up the day, uh, I think I must have tagged you in it. I'd highlighted a part of your book talking about the potato famine and talking about how, like, I, I had no idea Britain had such a part to play. And I was just living with a friend who's Irish when I was in, um, I was living in Bali a couple of months ago. And she, she doesn't like the Brits as much as like, she, she says it as a joke, but I think there is there is definitely a sense in Ireland that like the Brits are to blame for a lot of their trouble, and I think that's obviously for good reason. Mm. But like I, I mean, I had yeah, no I mean, idea. I, I hadn't. I didn't really. I actually studied quite a lot of Irish history at school. It was the only aspect of empire we really studied. But mm. they didn't make the analogies to India, and you know the Irish potato famine. There's a lot of analogies to, 
that happened in relation to famines happening in India. But also I yeah. didn't realize that the Irish had turned up in Wolverhampton in my hometown a hundred years before we did. And they went through almost exactly the same experience that we did. You know, they were in ghettos, they were persecuted by the police, they weren't allowed to live in certain places, they were victims of racism, and then they integrated. And that's pretty much what happened to the Sikhs. Yeah, so it's just like treat them like shit until they behave and then everyone's okay. Yeah, and this is why it's important to study history because you spot the patterns and it's probably happening again with a new, it is happening again with a new kind of era of immigrants you know and you look at a place like brick lane it's had about four waves of immigration the jewish the irish the asians and it keeps happening and each time we act like it's never happened before yeah it's crazy like what why do you think it is that people choose to ignore it i think it's partly it's very complicated like i said mm. before you know the imperial history is so complex much easier to think about more simple things also, it's a very painful, you know, people don't want to sit around thinking about the massacres and the genocide and the racism, you know, mm. it really, if you want to believe the best about your country, it's not a fun thing to do. I mean, I felt it myself. I didn't, I see myself as British and yeah. I didn't enjoy finding out some of the things I found out, but it's a bit like therapy, you know, you might not enjoy mm. the process. You find out diff hard things about yourself, maybe your partner. But actually that understanding can paradoxically make you love that person more or love yourself. I think it's the same yeah. with history. You know, you look yeah. it in the eye, it's hard, but it can make you more healthy and happier. Yeah, definitely. I love that analogy. It was, that was actually going to be a, a question that I asked is like, in terms of, did you feel drained from the research? Like, did you have to go to therapy first? As well, <laughs> if you're speaking openly about therapy, it's actually, it's my sponsors are a therapy company. I always talk about therapy and encourage people to go. Did you find yourself knocking at your therapist door a little bit more whilst doing the research? Um, I, I had about five years of therapy. It slightly ended in the middle of the book, but I yeah. found therapy incredibly, incredibly useful. And, and what it did for me is it made me spot the, the patterns of my own behavior, you know, mm. and that's what it does. It doesn't, it tells you how you react to things. And you, you go over it so many times and then you realize what you're doing. And sometimes you can stop yourself. And again, yeah. I think that's exactly what we need to do with empire because now we've got Brexit. We're trying to reestablish our you know, new relationships with the rest of the world. We need to remember what it was like the last time we did this, you know? Yeah. And that's a, um, that's a subject with uh, like quite a lot of empire-esque attitude behind the Brexiteers, like the pro-Brexit party was like getting our Britain back, getting... It's, it's our land in terms of like, we are Britain, we are powerful. And you actually, you mentioned this a couple of times in well, quite a lot through the book about how the language used by leaders of the country is about, we've got the world's best, world's this, world's that. Yeah, and, totally. Um, we've got this massive problem of imperial nostalgia in politics. So Brexit, you know, this talk of global Britain being a great trading nation, being world beating when it comes to coronavirus it all mm. goes back to empire and thing is in boris we have one of the most imperially nostalgic politicians we've ever had you know he's in his spare time writing books about churchill another great imperialist you know he's going to yeah. burma and reading out poems by rudyard kipling he's talking about flag waving piccaninnies 
and watermelon watermelon smiles he's talking about why barack obama doesn't like britain because he's got an ancestral dislike of the british empire you know he's obsessed with empire but i don't think he realizes it and it's same with jacob rees mogg i mean he in his spare time is you know writing books about how great these imperial victorians were you know it's quite strange that these two men are in charge at the moment oh my god isn't it just <laughs> isn't isn't that strange it's almost like this this well, there was a part in your book actually about how someone at Eton had described Boris Johnson that he's like a law unto himself and it's it's almost like teenagers who have just learned about a particular subject and think it's the coolest thing ever and like it's a very teenage sort of thing to do is like glorify war or make killing cool um, and I, don't yeah, it's just... I don't think they quite realise what they're doing, though, because they do all of this and, they, you know, they, they start a culture war over statues and all that crap. But then, you know, Johnson the other day was like he did a video for Black History Month and he said, you know, black history is British history. I like, Mate, everything you said and done over the last four years has been the opposite. And yeah. when necessary, he'll pretend to be into it. Well, actually, I don't even know when he's pretending. I don't think they've really thought it through. They just know that it works because it plays quite well with the public. Yeah, it's uh, well, it's all it's all games, isn't it? When it when it comes to politics, it's all about getting people on side, the right people on side at the right time. And some people have short memories. Some might remember his behaviour for four years, and then he says one thing, like, "Oh, well, he, he's not that bad as a person. He's all right." Yeah, politics is about gesture. So now you've got the, I mean, you had the whole ridiculous general election campaign when he kept on saying, get Brexit done. That worked. But now it's the flags, you know, having a flag in, the, in your background and it's empire, you know. It's about having eight police officers guarding the Winston Churchill statue. That was crazy the other week. Did you see that? I didn't see that. I, 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 I keep my brain clear of the news <laughs> as much as I can for my own mental health. So I didn't, I didn't see any of that. But eight, eight police officers protecting it. Seems... Yeah, there was no threat. It was through the night. And also the culture secretary the next day said that he wanted that if anyone ever attacked the statue of Nelson, he would chain himself to it. You know, you know how high the statue of Nelson is in Trafalgar Square. No one's going to pull it down. But yeah. they still do this because it's that idea that if you defend British history, if you defend statues, you know, you're defending Britain. It's so inane. The problem mm. is it works. And the more they yeah. annoy woke people like me, the better they do. Yeah. Yeah, of course. And it's uh, it just it just creates like an us and them environment, doesn't it? Yeah. I mean, basically, they're, they're dining off liberal tears and. Some, some people say, look, you should just stop reacting because it just makes them even more successful. But then I, that's like saying, don't have a brain. Mm, definitely. You can't stop your thoughts from showing up when they show up. And as uh, in school, bullies, whenever they were ignored, like they still did stuff. They, <laughs> they still carried on until someone got them in trouble. But if no one's really getting... Here's, here's the thing about the whole like us and them like the woke versus the unwoke is like it's online bullying of each other because there are woke warriors that love to insult and to um do this to the right but like it's just online bullying and it's just consistent to us it's who can ignore who and i don't think anyone's really playing 
playing that game very well at the moment. No, and it's, it's, it's all amplified by social media, you know. Mm. So debate isn't the way it used to be. It's all about echo chambers and triggering your opposition. But I think as a writer, you can't, you can't engage with the argument that you should say nothing because all we've got is words and arguments. Mm. You know, you can't turn those off. Yeah. And you've been you've been writing about politics for years. And, and there's a nice part of the you've got a, I don't know, I'm sure you've 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 seen the lovely words about you at the back of your book. Um, but you're winning winning titles in journalism since two thousand and two. Yeah, I was young journalist of the year in two thousand two. It's quite a long time ago. Um, but I've won a few things since, yeah. Prizes are like weird because they're nice if you win them, but otherwise they're meaningless. Yeah. And how long is it nice for? <laughs> it's nice for that day. And yeah. similarly with a bad review, you know, it really bothers you for about two hours mm. and then it, then it's gone. It's just noise. I think you should try to measure yourself by what the people in your life think of you. If yeah. they think you're an idiot, then you've got a problem. Yeah. It's the people that really truly know you, not the people that have read your book and just decide that you're a twat. Yeah. So I, yeah. I don't need the recognition of people who don't recognize me. You know, it's pretty, pretty basic. But it's amazing how many people don't, haven't absorbed that lesson. But also it's a lesson that every journalist has to face up to because if you're, if you're a person of color, particularly writing in the media, you get so much crap every single day of your life and you've yeah. got to ignore it. One thing I was going to say is, is how much would you say racism has impacted your career? Well, interesting is it's really come up with this book in that, you know, I've been getting lots of racist, racist abuse and handwritten letters. Really? Off racistly, yeah. And actually the yeah, Guardian rang me up the other, other week and they said, we're doing a news story about all the racist abuse you're getting. And I felt quite self-conscious about it because I feel that David Oyusoga, the black historian, gets it much worse. And I didn't want to be the focus of the article, but they did it anyway. Yeah. And they interviewed William Darimple, who's a white historian of colonial India who's been doing it for 30 years. And there yeah. was an amazing quote in the piece where he said, I've never had a single message of the kind Satnam gets from British readers ever. And that made me yeah. realize actually, a lot of the abuse I get is completely racist. And that's because when you're talking about empire, you're talking about race, you know, you're talking about yeah. white people conquering brown people. And yeah. until now, white people have always told the imperial story. It's always been a white man of 50 something getting off a train in India, making a documentary for BBC Two. But for the first time, you've got brown people in charge of the narrative. You've got David Yorisova, you've got me. And yeah. this really triggers racists massively. So this is why I get so many letters. Yeah, it's crazy because I, I suppose the narrative for them is, like, oh, it comes from bias. He's, he's obviously biased. It's like, well, hold on. Because well, obviously what racists tend not to do is is investigate their own thought patterns. <laughs> yeah. And, and to see that what their like the amount of biases going on in their brain when they're conjuring their narrative for their racist thoughts is a joke and i i just read the art of thinking clearly by rolf de belly and just in terms of like confirmation bias and even like i think social proof where they'll they'll look for members of their family or their friends and how they react to stories like this and if, if they're all racist if, if that's their their racist echo chamber I don't know what fucking hope we have. Yeah. Piece. The problem is that the mainstream narrative when it comes to empire is so 
entrenched. I mean, there's so many documentaries about the Indian railways. There's so many programs saying that mm. the railways were great and wasn't it nice for the British to give the Indians the railways? And it's, yeah. it's a lie. And as I explain yeah. in the book, it's a total mm. lie. So when you finally challenge that narrative, even if you're not brown, it really bothers people because that's how they measure themselves. You know, mm. it gives them their self-esteem. And suddenly there's a brown person saying, actually, that's wrong. And even if you're not racist, it upsets people. Yeah, yeah, definitely. Well, people don't people don't like to be told that they're wrong. And it will even be people that haven't done the research themselves. And you may not be surprised about this, but I haven't watched any documentaries on on railway. Um, mm-hmm. But, but to should. hear... Actually, yeah, watch a balanced one. Yeah, if, like, if, you, if you make one, I'll, I'll watch it. Um, but... I've been trying to make one. I I, I think I say in the book, I've been, I try, I pitched one saying, why don't you do a documentary about the truth of the Indian railways? Because, you know, it's Mm -hmm. a popular subject. And the producer said, look, Satnam, viewers don't want their prejudices challenged. It says it all. Yeah, it does. That just creates, like, it just reinforces the wall of that echo chamber. Yeah, it's bleak. Yeah, it is bleak. It is bleak. I, I, I've got a real sense of bleakness in this conversation. I don't think it's anything to, to do with like your part in this conversation, but <laughs> it just doesn't. It doesn't fill you with joy, learning about these things. And, and like but I said, I, I mean, that, I, I do conclude the book on a positive note, and I do think there's something mm-hmm. amazing happening with, with young people because of Black Lives Matter. You know, they're so engaged. They're getting yeah. their education from different sources outside the classroom. And actually even yeah. teachers are breaking free of the national curriculum and teaching it. I've had like yeah. hundreds of messages already from history teachers saying, look, I teach you already. Yeah. And I feel like there's such a demand. You know, you see in films like Black Panther, you know, which is the ninth biggest film of all time, which is so, you know, progressive when it talks about museums and race. And I just feel like there's a new generation of people your age um, who are much more engaged with the history. Yeah, I think, I think the level, the, where it changes is, so I'm, I'm 26. I think what I've noticed is those who are just coming into their 20s now are more of that, like, let's say, woke population mm. of they understand the biases that are pushed upon them through education, through the media, and they know that they need to get their information from elsewhere. And obviously every week there's something new to be concerned with on social media that you'll see all over people's Instagram stories, something like that. And, and they rightfully, they do the research into, into those things. And they're like, Oh my God, we were dickheads. (laughs) Yeah. I mean, they like publications like vice, but also like this amazing Instagram account called Brown history. There's so many people I know follow that. And they, it's actually really academic and rich what they learn. And I didn't yeah. know any other stuff. Like if you follow Brown history, you will know about the John Bolivar massacre. You know, you'll know yeah. about the Aborigines in Tasmania, you know, and it fills all the gaps that we had in our education. Yeah. Yeah, definitely. It, was, it just, um, you just said again about the Aborigines, that it was one, one picture in that dark emu book that really hit, hit me was a, it was a white guy with with a aborigine either side of him and he was sat on a stool on top of the chair to be above them with his hands on both of their knees in such a controlling way and it just captured 
the way in which like the the white man went into that country and just controlled these people through firstly like genocide and secondly then making them feel like they were doing something good for them mm. and then, yeah when you uh, look back at that stuff it's incredible i mean have you ever seen those pear soaps adverts no it's like this advertising from the victorian age where you know there's a black kid in the advert and when he washes with soap he turns white it's that basic God. <laughs> I mean, that was the basis of the advertising campaign. But that goes to the heart of the Victorian idea that, you know, blackness is evil and also white men, you know, are around to clean up the world, are kind of spiritually clean. And, you know, they're going around the world making everything better. Yeah. And like uh, domesticating the savages, it was obviously like one big part of the narrative as well. Mm. Yeah. It's Kipling's crazy poem, White Man's Burden. I mean, that was. White man's burden is a phrase that was hugely popular in the Victorian age. You know, this idea, white people existed. You know, it was a burden to have to liberate black people in this way. Yeah. It's, um, it is crazy. And I think, I'm just going to, I'm jumping around here and I'm just going to go back to the railway because I forgot to say about this. What blew my mind is the fact that the narrative there is obviously that England went in and they built the railways and they did such good and, and like it just like boosted the growth of the economy in India by so much when it was all produced in outside of India and then yeah. shipped into India as opposed to actually creating loads of jobs for the Indian locals. They just shipped it in. Because why yeah. you wouldn't want to burden the locals with a job that could help feed their families? Why, why would you want to do something like that? And the railways were, if you look at the early maps, they were built to take resources out of India to Britain. You know, They didn't build railways for the Indians so that it was easier for them to travel. They built it so yeah. it was easier to move the military around and to take the resources out of India. You know, India was a very rich country before the British came. I think it accounted for 25% of the mm. world's GDP. By the end, by the time British finished with it, it was, you know, a third world nation, a fraction of that. So, but the thing is in India, people have a very sophisticated understanding of that. And yet yeah. over here, we have no idea. Yeah. How, how about for you, obviously, because you, you're of Indian heritage growing up, did your parents like educate you on this or was it no, all just from the schooling system? No, very little. Well, my dad doesn't read, can't read and write. And um mm. And the Sikhs are a very working class culture. So the focus was just on work, you know, and we absorbed the narrative because Enoch Powell was a local MP. We absorbed this idea that, you know, we could be deported if we didn't behave. You know, yeah. we, it wasn't taught to us that actually we were citizens, that, you know, c- citizens of empire were citizens of Britain, you know, and we yeah. couldn't be deported because we were literally, but then again, look at Windrush and people were deported, you know, but yeah. That's a reflection that's, of how that's poorly... That's so recent. And that's amazing, isn't it? So basically, people on Windrush, and Windrush is the boat that black people came on in the 1950s, I think, from the Caribbean. They didn't come with jobs in mind. You know, They came yeah. because they had citizenship of Britain. Yeah. The 1948 Nationality Act gave citizens of empire citizenship of Britain. So they just came, you know? And um, that's been forgotten to such a degree that recently some of them have been deported. You yeah. know, it's such a scandal, literally a scandal. I mean, they're having to pay compensation, but it's incredible. It says a lot about our country that that happened. 
Yeah. And also just like, let's just throw money at it and forget it never happened. Yeah. And like, also they're not throwing the money in a very healthy way. I mean, apparently loads of people still haven't got their compensation. Some really? people died and some people have died before getting an apology or getting compensation. Jesus Christ. And this is like very recent, last few years that we're in Russia. There are people still being deported up until recently. Is, is that, have yeah, you yeah, heard totally, of anything yeah, like yeah. that? Yeah, it's incredible. I mean, I, we are such a weird country that that could happen. And they were basically deported because they're brown. I mean, it was a consequence of Theresa May's, you know, hostile policy towards immigrants that everyone had to prove why they were here. But how do you prove you, you have right to be here when you came as a citizen, you know? Yeah. I mean, like, if you put it up to me and said to me, like, if I lost my passport and my birth certificate wasn't with my mum, I wouldn't be able to prove it. Like, I yeah. can't just pull documents out of anywhere. And, like, the, the how long would those documents have to have been looked after for them to be still around now? Like, what, 70 years? Exactly, 60, 70 yeah. years? It's just not cool. It makes <laughs> me think back to my parents, you know, who you know, in the 80s and 90s, they wouldn't get a British passport because they were like, look, they might send us back. And they would always keep their suitcases, you know, on top of the wardrobes in case we had to suddenly go. They just, you know, they, they absorbed this narrative that we, we've we come here without an invitation. Not that yeah. we have a relationship going back hundreds of years, you know, that we yeah. fought for this country that colonized us, you know, in our millions. Yeah. You know, and that narrative completely gone. Yeah. Growing, growing up for you, like I know you said you grew up in Wolverhampton, was racism like a big a big part of your childhood? Did you feel it growing up? I didn't actually feel it because mainly because I was surrounded by Indians. I mean, yeah, <laughs> there were very few white people. It's only looking mm. back that I can see there was a lot of racism. Like my mum wouldn't let us out when the wolves were playing. And now mm. I know that's because they were very racist, the fans. They actually yeah. went around in KKK hoods in the late 70s. No, um, no. I remember one of my first memories is of hiding with my family in the Sikh temple. And that, it turns out, was because these far-right gangs were, you know, rampaging around the Midlands and attacking Indian communities. But in my memory, it was just a nice, cosy... I remember a Sikh with a sword standing at the entrance. Yeah. But now I, now I understand the political situation. It's only as an adult that you look back and you're like, oh, right, that was racism. Yeah. And that's crazy. Like, for, and I think football fans, like now they're trying to stamp racism out, as you say, but it's still there. It's just these disgusting, small-brained individuals that yeah. just like, I, I don't understand it. And I think that's obviously a good thing that yeah. I don't understand it. The but, only um, times I've heard racist abuse or been a subject of racist abuse three times in my life, actually probably four times, three of the times were at England football matches or watching England play in pubs. So there's a definite thing with football, isn't there? Yeah. Well, it's just, it's tribal, isn't it? Football. Mm. And I, I, I don't, I don't get the whole like, Oh, I love this team. This is my team because, and it's, it's the same actually with people who attach the idea of empire because everyone that was involved in the empire will not give a fuck about the existence of the people who nowadays are saying, oh, the empire was so good. And same for the football fans or people like that. Like that football club do not care that you exist. Mm. 
it is Actually, a yeah, one one way street the love <laughs> yeah well, it's changed now because I am a Wolves fan now and actually Wolves have one of the most racially diverse fan bases in Britain. Actually, their captain was half Punjabi for a while. And um, things are complex. One of the points I try to make in the book is that even during Empire, we need to remember there were loads of establishment figures who hated Empire. There's an yeah. idea that we shouldn't apply modern morals to the past, right? But yes. look, look what was happening at the time. You know, William Gladstone was railing against Empire. Even Queen Victoria spoke out against it sometimes, you know? Um, yeah. George Orwell, William Morris, loads of people at the time thought it was yeah. disgusting, especially when it came to looting things from museums, you know? People complained yeah. about it. It was illegal at the time. There was a Geneva Convention that made it illegal in the early 1900s when we were looting Tibet. And um, we forget mm. that. You know, this is the idea that everyone loved empire just not true yeah there was um there was a bit in terms of like tibet with gandhi now i don't know much about the the history of gandhi and all all i ever know is probably what a lot of people know about gandhi is that you can stick his face on a quote on instagram and probably get a few likes <laughs> but it it was empire that forced essentially gandhi to be famous is that yeah, yeah. I mean, it was, it was his rebellion against the Raj, you know, that made him. But to, Tibet's a fascinating story. I mean, what happened there? I mean, the, in the early 1900s, because Tibet was a bit like North Korea in that it was the only part of the world the British weren't allowed into. I think only yeah. one or two British people had ever seen it. And so mm. they were obsessed with it intellectually and they wanted books on it. And so they basically came up with a complete bollocks reason to invade yeah. it. And they invaded it. They killed loads of Tibetans with guns who had only, you know, superstitious stones to protect themselves with. It's kind of horrific what happened. And again, there was outrage at the time. Yeah. I'm sorry about the traffic. There's suddenly loads of people. I couldn't hear it. Couldn't hear it. Oh, but um, yeah, it's, it's very similar to the narrative of weapons of mass destruction. Like create something that you want to find somewhere and mm, yeah. you're free to roam. Yeah, I guess there's an analogy there, yeah. I mean, yeah, the British would just invade places because they were interested. Or then there, there's also something called the punitive expedition. And the one that happened in 1868, Ethiopia, is, is an example of that, where the British felt their pride had been insulted. I think some missionaries had been kidnapped by the guy who ran Ethiopia. So they yeah. launched a massive military campaign to just, A, rescue them. But wildly expensive. And then yeah. they just take everything. So, you know, one of the things they stole there is now in the middle of the VNA, you know, and there's a massive campaign to get it returned because it means so much to Ethiopian Christians and this thing just mm. sits there. Imagine if the French had taken Stonehenge, you know, in the Napoleonic Wars and stuck it yeah. outside Paris. We'd want it back, right? We would want it. I'm, I'm sure there'd be quite a few hippies around summer solstice <laughs> that would be campaigning to get that back. <laughs> <laughs> and it's insane that they say, look, it's all right, you can borrow it. It's like, you stole it. You're going to let me just borrow something? Well, that's insane. It's just bullying, isn't it, in a sense? Like, like... And also, <laughs> lots of it's not even exhibited. So they're like, look, we don't even rate it enough to put it on display because the British Museum only puts 1% of its stuff on display. Yeah. We don't even value it enough to display it. We're going to put it in a box, but you can't have it back. If you're nice, we'll lend it to you for a bit. Oh. Imagine it that the the con this the control that that person must get off on whoever's in charge of that is is a joke. But you so you mentioned Africa there. That's actually another book that I've 
sort of read on empire um it's called a grain of wheat and i read it once because i was in a bookshop and it's it was obama's reading list and i was like well i mean he's pretty smart i might as well read something that he's read um and this book a grain of wheat essentially is about the like the kenyan uhuru so like the kenyan independence and like the uprising oh yeah and yeah. I mean, that's a really good example of that because the other thing people always say about empire is look this happened such a long time ago it's got nothing to do with us the Mau Mau, the Kenya Mau Mau, the British were repressing incredible colonial violence. It was in the 19 bloody 50s, you know. Yeah. Black people were being beaten up in the Notting Hill riots in the 50s and 60s at the same time that we were inflicting incredible racist violence upon the Mau Mau, you know, and we've had to compensate them. And this is recent, you know, this is yeah. within our living memory. So yeah. it wasn't a long time ago and the legacies are very live. Yeah, and they they were tortured as well. The Mau Mau, I think you say mm. in the book, it was um, it was about twenty million or something that's been paid out to a few thousand of them. And I like, it makes you wonder, like, what what will that money do for them? I suppose that's that's going to be a great help in terms of how far that money will go in in that country. But I'm sure they'd have much preferred just not to be tortured in the exactly. first place. The other thing that's weird is the apologies because Britain never apologized. He hasn't apologized for the John and Wallabog mascot. He hasn't apologized for slavery, you know? And yet it does apologize when necessary. I mean, when it came to the Irish Good Friday Agreement, the British apologized for certain mm. things, you know? They actually said sorry. So we do have it within us. And also, I think we paid compensation to yeah. um, certain victims of the Irish troubles, you know? So when it comes to certain things, we are willing to consider it but then not in relation to lots of other things. It's weird. It's mad because sometimes I like to think like if I, if you sat down with these people in a room and you took their suit off and they were just sat there in their joggers or their pajamas, and if you had like a, a human to human conversation, would they really believe half of the stuff that they're saying? Yeah. I mean, this is the problem is people aren't very educated about empire. When Tony Blair himself is saying, I didn't know much about China, you know, you know, the level of education is poor, you know? Yeah. I don't think Boris Johnson, Jacob Rees-Mogg have a particularly sophisticated understanding of imperial history. I think they've probably read Jan Morris. They've definitely not read my book, but um, I wish have they you sent, Have you sent a copy? <laughs> I think I, think I know it. Boris Johnson's address if you need it. <laughs> <laughs> I was thinking about it, but then I was like, no, they, they could probably pay for one, you know? Yeah. But, I mean, so many politicians are reading it. I got a message yesterday from Malcolm Turnbull, the former prime minister of Australia, so I'm just sure. hoping that actually he, he wrote me an email today and he wants to talk, but I'm going to ask him to send Boris a copy. Maybe the people I want yeah. them to read it are those Tories, but I don't know how they're going to change their minds because they've started these culture wars and it's working out well for them. It's very painful to realize that your beliefs are fucked basically <laughs> and to admit uh, it's particularly hard for boris johnson to admit when he's wrong um yeah, no, and I think it, sure, it is for a lot of people to admit when you're wrong but that's what shows a good person i think is being able to say hey i was wrong i'm really gonna try and do better next time that's kind of like the the attitude that you get from a, a good person so like yeah. for me, like my ignorance, I'm, I'm trying to make up for that now. Like I've, I've grown up in Dorset. There were maybe two people of color in my school. Mm. 
and refugees from, I think it was Afghanistan at the time, obviously spoke no English and no, like, actually you say about in the book about sins of like a mission and, and kind of like sins of commission. There was no overt racism towards them, but you could see it in people's attitudes in terms of welcoming, welcoming them. And like, I, I think back to that now and I wish I'd done more to welcome them. And obviously you, you, you can't turn back the clock, but it's, it's just crazy. Cause there's like places where I'm from in, in England, like we, it's, it's very, very white here. Mm. Well, I guess you're talking about how the, you know, racism comes in different forms, you know, mm. in post-war Britain, the imperial legacies of, 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 imperial racism were pretty obvious is racial violence you know is fear yeah. of mixed mixed race relationships it was a color bar you know you weren't allowed to go to the same pub if brown yeah. people were there white people were there but nowadays it's more sophisticated you know it's um mm. it's about things that don't happen it's the people you don't see in certain places you know it's yeah. the fact that there's hardly any black people on the boards of FTSE 100 companies you know there's hardly mm. any black people in Fleet Street in my career you know stuff like yeah. that yeah and would you say there's like a lack of in in your sort of line of work in journalism i was the worst because you know i mean to be honest i've been one of the only brown columnists for throughout my career you know i'm mm. there's, there's probably now four or five of us you know out of yeah. hundreds that's yeah that's not a very lot. very poor and i mean there's this there's quite a, there's a few asians now but there's no black people. I mean, there's very few. There's in my, my on my paper, there's one black writer. There's very few, and yeah. actually, white working class are very rare too. And that's because it's an industry dominated by the middle classes. You know, the middle classes yeah. really want to work in it, and the working classes would like to work in it, but they don't know how and they don't have the connections. And yeah. So how do they get in? And that comes down to the institutionalized sort of classes and racism whatever you want to call it and it keeps the middle class in in the seat of of that job yeah totally yeah it's it's about work experience basically you know white middle class people get all this work experience on the times mm. and all these newspapers and I'm, i remember applying for papers sending out 300 applications and getting three responses you know that was part i don't think that was because of my color i think it was probably because i was in wolverhampton you know, yeah. working class. I mean, how do you do work experience in a London-based newspaper if you're in Wolverhampton? Yeah. Yeah, definitely. There's something about that, like about area codes and things like that. I remember I've watched a film called The Florida Project, and it's, it's obviously it's in America, um, but it just highlights that there are parts of America that are just completely forgotten by the government and just sort of the police won't go there and they'll just say, hey, can you guys just sort of govern yourselves if you royally fuck up like we're going to come in and we're going to arrest a load of you but um it's just like op opportunities in certain areas they're not focused on yeah totally i'm actually i talk about this in the book in that the dom the dominance of london the city of london over the rest of the country goes back to empire why mm. does the city of london the square mile have such influence it's because it grew up you know at the time of empire if you want to do any kind of international violence in the world you had to come to London, you know? And so yeah. the concerns of the city for hundreds of years have dominated the concerns of manufacturing in Wolverhampton, Manchester, everywhere else, because it was so powerful and so rich. And it's all about imperialism, right? 
Yeah. Everything goes back to empire. <laughs> Everything. Empire is the answer. <laughs> yeah. I, I mean, it's, it certainly has, has sort of seemed to be the case. And the book is great. I think especially for me to read it as like a white middle-class guy, like that's super important um, to get this in the hands of people like me and and like you say like for, for yourself like Sikhs brown people people of color everyone well, everyone needs to read your book basically sat down <laughs> well I like to hear that but no I, I agree it's no point if just brown people pick you up and go oh that's the truth yeah you know, I think everyone needs to read it we need to just understand ourselves as a country because this whole yeah. area of history has been locked away to the, ma- yeah. the mainstream public for a long time and it shouldn't be that way yeah, definitely. Or what? What can what can the average person do to help us out? Is it a case of like when children pop out, educate them, or do you have any plans to try and take this further and get this into the institution? Oh yeah, I mean there's a there's going to be a campaign to get into schools. Actually, I think that's happening anyway. I'm, I'm talking to a conference of history teachers in a few weeks' time. It's already been embraced by that but there's loads of things we could there's loads of campaigns happening at the moment a to get empire onto the school curriculum but also to build alternative statues rather than trying to tear them down i think it's there's loads of campaigns to get statues of brown people from history put up that's a very positive thing you can do i mean there's books being written about these forgotten brown people throughout history and that's great so i think there's many aspects to improving people's imperial education yeah yeah, definitely. Well, I, I'm hoping that it will be the case because I think I feel quite enlightened from reading your book and uh, I imagine other people will do the same. Have you got plans for other books just yet? Are you, are you ready to take a break and, and get out and socialise in the world when that's available? Yeah, God, I just want to leave my house. But um, yeah, I'm turning it into a Channel 4 documentary. So that's going to be a two-part documentary in autumn. So. Cool. That's the next thing. And then I might think about doing another version of the book, but I've, yeah. only after I've left the house. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> Once you've got some fresh air, <laughs> once it's safe to go outside, well, all, all the wheels will, will become moving again. Well, we, it wraps us nicely there, just on just on an hour. Um, so thank you so much for coming on. That said, I'm, I'm impressed myself for managing not to have a brain explosion throughout that conversation. <laughs> um, you're an incredibly smart man. You don't need someone not smart to tell you that. But um, yeah, I just want to thank you for writing that book. And, and yeah, it was, it was great. And thanks for coming on. Well, thanks for reading. And thank you for being so generous. And I hope to see you again or talk to you again. Yeah, definitely. Where where can people find you? Where can people find the book? Is there any preferred place for people to buy it? Oh, it's available everywhere, but obviously support your local independent bookshop when they finally open, I think in three weeks' time. Yeah. Is that where you're going to be headed? Uh, yeah, I'm going to go and have a look at my own books in the bookshop. I haven't <laughs> seen that yet. It's like I've had this experience of being a bestseller and I've not seen a single copy of my book in any bookshop. Oh, I, so I, I might didn't realise it was on the bestsellers list. Book. Congratulations. Oh, thanks, man. Yeah. Yeah, sick. All right, perfect. Well, thank you so much again. Cheers. Thanks, Ed. Well, thank you so much for listening, everyone. I hope that was an enlightening conversation. And if you want to get the book Empire Land, the link is in the description. 
or you can get it from wherever you get your books from. It is a really, really good book. And like I said, I felt conflicted reading it. And those are the best books to read, the ones that make you question things because questions provide answers and we're all just looking for answers, aren't we? So thank you very much for listening. If you want therapy, head to betterhelp.com forward slash need to read. If you want to join the Patreon, you're a legend. Go to patreon.com forward slash need to read. But that is it from me. Thanks so much for listening. Love you. Bye.